Chapter One, Part Two of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Lee Paquette. Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock. Chapter One, Part Two. A LITTLE DINNER WITH MR. LUCULLUS Fyshe. The Duke of Dulham had landed in New York five days before, and had looked round eagerly for a field of turnips, but hadn't seen any. He had been driven up Fifth Avenue, and had kept his eyes open for potatoes, but there were none. Nor had he seen any shorthorns in Central Park, nor any South Downs on Broadway for the duke of course like all dukes was agricultural from his norfolk jacket to his hobnailed boots at his restaurant he had cut a potato in two and sent half of it to the head waiter to know if it was a bermudian it had all the look of an early bermudian but the duke feared from the shading of it that it might be only a late trinidad and the head waiter sent it to the chef mistaking it for a complaint and the chef sent it back to the duke with a message that it was not a Bermudian, but a Prince Edward Island. And the duke sent his compliments to the chef, and the chef sent his compliments to the duke. And the duke was so pleased at learning this, that he had a similar potato wrapped up for him to take away, and tipped the head waiter twenty-five cents, feeling that in an extravagant country the only thing to do is to go the people one better so the duke carried the potato round for five days in new york and showed it to everybody but beyond this he got no sign of agriculture out of the place at all no one who entertained him seemed to know what the beef that they gave him had been fed on no one even in what seemed the best society could talk rationally about preparing a hog for the breakfast-table people seemed to eat cauliflower without distinguishing the denmark variety from the oldenburg and few if any knew silesian bacon even when they tasted it and when they took the duke out twenty-five miles into what was called the country there were still no turnips but only real estate and railway embankments and advertising signs so that altogether the obvious and visible decline of american agriculture in what should have been its leading centre saddened the duke's heart thus the duke passed four gloomy days agriculture vexed him and still more of course the money concerns which had brought him to america money is a troublesome thing but it has got to be thought about even by those who were not brought up to it if on account of money matters one has been driven to come over to america in the hope of borrowing money the awkwardness of how to go about it naturally makes one gloomy and preoccupied had there been broad fields of turnips to walk in and holstein cattle to punch in the ribs one might have managed to borrow it in the course of gentlemanly intercourse as from one cattleman to another but in new york amid piles of masonry and roaring street traffic and glittering lunches and palatial residences one simply couldn't do it herein lay the truth about the duke of dulham's visit and the error of mr lucullus fyshe mr fyshe was thinking that the duke had come to lend money in reality he had come to borrow it in fact 
the duke was reckoning that by putting a second mortgage and dulham towers for twenty thousand sterling and by selling his scotch shooting and leasing his irish grazing and subletting his welsh coal rent he could raise altogether a hundred thousand pounds this for a duke is an enormous sum if he once had it he would be able to pay off the first mortgage on dulham towers buy in the rights of the present tenant of the scotch shooting and the claim of the present mortgagee of the irish grazing and in fact be just where he started this is ducal finance which moves always in a circle in other words the duke was really a poor man not poor in the american sense where poverty comes as a sudden blighting stringency taking the form of an inability to get hold of a quarter of a million dollars no matter how badly one needs it and where it passes like a storm cloud and is gone but poor in that permanent and distressing sense known only to the british aristocracy the duke's case of course was notorious and mr fyshe ought to have known of it the duke was so poor that the duchess was compelled to spend three or four months every year at a fashionable hotel on the riviera simply to save money and his eldest son the young marquis of beldoodle had to put in most of his time shooting big game in uganda with only twenty or twenty-five beaters and with so few carriers and couriers and such a dearth of elephant men and hyena boys that the thing was a perfect scandal the duke indeed was so poor that a younger son simply to add his efforts to those of the rest was compelled to pass his days in mountain climbing in the himalayas and the duke's daughter was obliged to pay long visits to minor german princesses putting up with all sorts of hardship and while the ducal family wandered about in this way climbing mountains and shooting hyenas and saving money the duke's place or seat dulham towers was practically shut up with no one in it but servants and housekeepers and gamekeepers and tourists and the picture galleries except for artists and visitors and villagers were closed and the town-house except for the presence of servants and tradesmen and secretaries was absolutely shut but the duke knew that rigid parsimony of this sort if kept up for a generation or two will work wonders and this sustained him and the duchess knew it and it sustained her in fact all the ducal family knowing that it was only a matter of a generation or two took their misfortune very cheerfully the only thing that bothered the duke was borrowing money this was necessary from time to time when loans or mortgages fell in but he hated it it was beneath him his ancestors had often taken money but had never borrowed it and the duke chafed under the necessity there was something about the process that went against the grain to sit down in pleasant converse with a man perhaps almost a gentleman and then lead up to the subject and take his money from him seemed to the duke's mind essentially low he could have understood knocking a man over the head with a fire shovel and taking his money but not borrowing it so the duke had come to america where borrowing is notoriously easy any member of the mausoleum club for instance would borrow fifty cents to buy a cigar or fifty thousand dollars to buy a house or five millions to buy a railroad with complete indifference and pay it back too if he could and think nothing of it 
In fact, ever so many of the Duke's friends were known to have borrowed money in America with magical ease, pledging for it their seats or their pictures, or one of their daughters, anything. So the Duke knew it must be easy, and yet, incredible as it may seem, he had spent four days in New York, entertained everywhere, and made much of, and hadn't borrowed a cent. He had been asked to lunch in a riverside palace, and fool that he was, had come away without so much as a dollar to show for it. He had been asked to a country house on the Hudson, and like an idiot, he admitted it himself, hadn't asked his host for as much as his train fare. He had been driven twice round Central Park in a motor, and had been taken tamely back to his hotel, not a dollar the richer. The thing was childish, and he knew it. But to save his life the Duke didn't know how to begin. None of the things that he was able to talk about seemed to have the remotest connection with the subject of money. The Duke was able to converse reasonably well over such topics as the approaching downfall of England. They had talked of it at Dulham Towers for sixty years. Or over the duty of England towards China, or the duty of England to Persia, or its duty to aid the Young Turk movement, and its duty to check the old Servia agitation. The Duke became so interested in these topics, and in explaining that while he had never been a little Englander, he had always been a big Turk, and that he stood for a small Bulgaria and a restricted Austria, that he got further and further away from the topic of money, which was what he really wanted to come to, and the Duke rose from his conversations with a look of such obvious distress on his face that everybody realized that his anxiety about England was killing him. And then suddenly light had come. It was on his fourth day in New York that he unexpectedly ran into the Viscount Belstairs. They had been together as young men in Nigeria and as middle-aged men in St. Petersburg. And Belstairs, who was in abundant spirits and who was returning to England on the Gloritania at noon the next day, explained to the Duke that he had just borrowed fifty thousand pounds on security that wouldn't be worth a halfpenny in England. And the Duke said with a sigh, "How the deuce do you do it, Belstairs? Do what? Borrow it," said the Duke. How do you manage to get people to talk about it? Here I am wanting to borrow a hundred thousand, and I'm hanged if I can even find an opening. At which the Viscount had said, "Pooh, pooh! You don't need any opening. Just borrow it straight out. Ask for it across a dinner table, just as you'd ask for a match. They think nothing of it here." Across the dinner table," repeated the Duke, who was a literal man. Certainly," said the Viscount. "Not too soon, you know. Say after a second glass of wine. I assure you, it's absolutely nothing." And it was just at that moment that a telegram was handed to the Duke from Mister Lucullus Fyshe, praying him, as he was reported to be visiting the next day the city where the Mausoleum Club stands, to make acquaintance with him by dining at that institution. And the Duke. Being, as I say, a literal man, decided that just as soon as Mister Fyshe should give him a second glass of wine, that second glass should cost Mister Fyshe a hundred thousand pounds sterling. And oddly enough, 
at about the same moment mr fyshe was calculating that provided he could make the duke drink a second glass of the mausoleum champagne that glass would cost the duke about five million dollars so the very morning after that the duke had arrived on the new york express in the city and being an ordinary democratic commercial sort of place absorbed in its own affairs it made no fuss over him whatever the morning edition of the plutopian citizen simply said we understand that the duke of dulham arrives at the grand palaver this morning after which it traced the duke's pedigree back to jock of ealing in the twelfth century and let the matter go at that and the noon edition of the people's advocate merely wrote we learn that duke dulham is in town he is a relation of jack ealing but the commercial echo and financial undertone appearing at four o'clock printed in its stock market columns the announcement we understand that the duke of dulham who arrives in town today is proposing to invest a large sum of money in american industrials and of course that announcement reached every member of the mausoleum club within twenty minutes the duke of dulham entered the mausoleum club that evening at exactly seven of the clock he was a short thick man with a shaven face red as a brick and grizzled hair and from the look of him he could have got a job at sight in any lumber camp in wisconsin he wore a dinner jacket just like an ordinary person but even without his norfolk coat and his hobnailed boots there was something in the way in which he walked up the long main hall of the mausoleum club that every imported waiter in the place recognized in an instant the duke cast his eye about the club and approved of it it seemed to him a modest quiet place very different from the staring ostentation that one sees too often in a german hof or an italian palazzo he liked it mr fyshe and mr furlong were standing in a deep alcove or bay where there was a fire and india-rubber trees and pictures with shaded lights and a whisky and soda table there the duke joined them mr fyshe he had met already that afternoon at the palaver and he called him fyshe as if he had known him for ever and indeed after a few minutes he called the rector of st asaph's simply furlong for he had been familiar with the anglican clergy in so many parts of the world that he knew that to attribute any peculiar godliness to them socially was the worst possible taste by jove said the duke turning to tap the leaf of a rubber tree with his finger that fellow's a nigerian isn't he i hardly know said mr fyshe i imagine so and he added you've been in nigeria duke oh some years ago said the duke after big game you know fine place for it did you get any asked mr fyshe not much said the duke a hippo or two ah said mr fyshe and of course now and then a gyro the duke went on and added my sister was luckier though she potted a rhino one day straight out of a dooley i call that rather good mr fyshe called it that too ah now here's a good thing the duke went on looking at a picture he carried in his waistcoat pocket an eyeglass that he used for pictures and for tamworth hogs 
and he put it to his eye with one hand, keeping the other in the left pocket of his jacket. And this, this is a very good thing. I believe so, said Mr. Fyshe. You really have some awfully good things here, continued the Duke. He had seen far too many pictures in too many places ever to speak of values or compositions or anything of that sort. The Duke merely looked at a picture and said, Now here's a good thing, or, Ah, here now is a very good thing, or, I say, here's a really good thing. No one could get past this sort of criticism. The Duke had long since found it bulletproof. They showed me some rather good things in New York, he went on, but really the things you have here seem to be awfully good things. Indeed, the Duke was truly pleased with the pictures, for something in their composition, or else in the soft, expensive light that shone on them, enabled him to see in the distant background of each a hundred thousand sterling, and that is a very beautiful picture indeed. "'When you come to our side of the water, Fyshe,' said the Duke, "'I must show you my Botticelli.' Had Mr. Fyshe, who knew nothing of art, expressed his real thought, he would have said, "'Show me your witch.' But he only answered, "'I shall be delighted to see it.' In any case, there was no time to say more, for at this moment the portly figure and the great face of Dr. Boomer president of plutoria university loomed upon them and with him came a great burst of conversation that blew all previous topics into fragments he was introduced to the duke and shook hands with mr furlong and talked to both of them and named the kind of cocktail that he wanted all in one breath and in the very next he was asking the duke about the babylonian hieroglyphic bricks that his grandfather the thirteenth duke had brought home from the Euphrates, in which every archaeologist knew, were preserved in the Duke's library at Dulham Towers. And though the Duke hadn't known about the bricks himself, he assured Dr. Boomer that his grandfather had collected some really good things, quite remarkable. And the Duke, having met a man who knew about his grandfather, felt in his own element. In fact, he was so delighted with Dr. Boomer and the Nigerian rubber tree, and the shaded pictures, and the charm of the whole place, and the certainty that half a million dollars was easily findable in it, that he put his eyeglass back in his pocket and said, A charming club you have here, really most charming. Yes, said Mr. Fyshe in a casual tone, a comfortable place, we like to think. But if he could have seen what was happening below in the kitchens of the mausoleum club, Mr. Fyshe would have realized that just then it was turning into a most uncomfortable place. For the walking delegate, with his hat on sideways, who had haunted it all day, was busy now among the assembled Chinese philosophers, writing down names and distributing strikers' cards of the International Union, and assuring them that the boys of the Grand Palaver had all walked out at seven, and that all the boys of the Commercial and the Union and of every restaurant in town were out an hour ago. And the philosophers were taking their cards and hanging up their waiters' coats and putting on shabby jackets and bowler hats, worn sideways, and changing themselves by a wonderful transformation from respectable Chinese to slouching loafers of the lowest type. 
but Mr. Fyshe, being in an alcove and not in the kitchens, saw nothing of these things, not even when the head-waiter, shaking with apprehension, appeared with cocktails made by himself, in glasses that he himself had had to wipe, did Mr. Fyshe, absorbed in the easy urbanity of the Duke, notice that anything was amiss. Neither did his guests, for Dr. Boomer, having discovered that the Duke had visited Nigeria, was asking him his opinion of the famous Bimbabwe remains of the lower Nigeria. The Duke confessed that he really hadn't noticed them, and the doctor assured him that Strabble had indubitably mentioned them. He would show the Duke the very passage, and that they apparently lay, if his memory served him, about halfway between Uhat and Ohat, whether above Uhat and below Ohat, or above Ohat and below Uhat, he would not care to say for a certainty. For that, the Duke must wait till the President had time to consult his library. And the Duke was fascinated forthwith with the President's knowledge of Nigerian geography, and explained that he had once actually descended from below Timbuktu to Uhat in a duly manned only by four swats. So presently, having drunk the cocktails, the party moved solemnly in a body from the alcove towards the private dining-room upstairs, still busily talking of the Bimbabwe remains and the swats, and whether the dooley was, or was not, the original goatskin boat of the Book of Genesis. And when they entered the private dining-room with its snow-white table and cut glass and flowers, as arranged by a retreating philosopher now heading towards the gaiety theatre with his hat over his eyes, the duke again exclaimed, "'Really, you have a most comfortable club. Delightful!' So they sat down to dinner, over which Mr. Furlong offered up a grace as short as any that are known even to the Anglican clergy. And the head-waiter, now in deep distress, for he had been sending out telephone messages in vain to the Grand Palaver and the Continental, like the captain of a sinking ship, served oysters that he had opened himself, and poured Rhine wine with a trembling hand. For he knew that unless by magic a new chef and a waiter or two could be got from the palaver, all hope was lost. But the guests still knew nothing of his fears. Dr. Boomer was eating his oysters as a Nigerian hippo might eat up the crew of a dooley, in great mouthfuls, and commenting as he did so, upon the luxuriousness of modern life. And in the pause that followed the oysters, he illustrated for the Duke with two pieces of bread the essential difference in structure between the Mexican Pueblo and the tribal house of the Navajos, and lest the Duke should confound either or both of them with the adobe hut of the Bimbabwe tribes, he showed the difference at once with a couple of olives. By this time, of course, the delay in the service was getting noticeable. Mr. Fyshe was directing angry glances towards the door, looking for the reappearance of the waiter, and growling an apology to his guests. But the President waved the apology aside. "'In my college days,' he said, "'I should have considered a plate of oysters an ample meal. I should have asked for nothing more. We eat,' he said, "'too much.' This, of course, started Mr. Fyshe on his favorite topic. "'Luxury!' he exclaimed. "'I should think so. It is the curse of the age, the appalling growth of luxury, the piling up of money, the ease with which huge fortunes are made. 
good, thought the Duke. Here we are coming to it. These are the things that are going to ruin us. Mark my words. The whole thing is bound to end in a tremendous crash. I don't mind telling you, Duke. My friends here, I am sure, know it already, that I am more or less a revolutionary socialist. I am absolutely convinced, sir, that our modern civilization will end in a great social catastrophe. Mark what I say. And here Mr. Fyshe became exceedingly impressive. A great social catastrophe. Some of us may not live to see it, perhaps. But you, for instance, Furlong, or a younger man, you certainly will. But here Mr. Fyshe was understating the case. They were all going to live to see it right on the spot. For it was just at this moment, when Mr. Fyshe was talking of the social catastrophe, and explaining with flashing eyes that it was bound to come, that it came. And when it came, it lit, of all places in the world, right there in the private dining-room of the Mausoleum Club. For the gloomy head-waiter re-entered, and leaned over the back of Mr. Fyshe's chair, and whispered to him, "'Eh? What?' said Mr. Fyshe. The head-waiter, his features stricken with inward agony, whispered again. "'The infernal damned scoundrels!' said Mr. Fyshe, starting back in his chair. "'On strike? In this club? It's an outrage!' "'I'm very sorry, sir. I didn't like to tell you, sir. I'd hope I might have got help from the outside, but it seems, sir, the hotels are all the same way.' "'Do you mean to say,' said Mr. Fyshe, speaking very slowly, "'that there is no dinner?' "'I'm sorry, sir,' moaned the waiter. "'It appears the chef hadn't even cooked it. "'Beyond what's on the table, sir, there's nothing.' The social catastrophe had come. Mr. Fyshe sat silent with his fist clenched. Dr. Boomer, with his great face transfixed, stared at the empty oyster-shells, thinking, perhaps, of his college days. The duke, with his hundred thousand, dashed from his lips in the second cup of champagne that was never served, thought of his politeness first, and murmured something about taking them to his hotel. But there is no need to follow the unhappy details of the unended dinner. Mr. Fyshe's one idea was to be gone— he was too true an artist to think that finance could be carried on over the tablecloth of a second-rate restaurant, or on an empty stomach in a deserted club. The thing must be done over again. He must wait his time and begin anew. And so it came about that the little dinner-party of Mr. Lucullus Feisch dissolved itself into its constituent elements, like broken pieces of society in the great cataclysm portrayed by Mr. Feisch himself. The Duke was bowled home in a snorting motor to the brilliant rotunda of the Grand Palaver, itself waiterless and supperless. The rector of St. Asaph's wandered off home to his rectory, musing upon the contents of its pantry. And Mr. Fyshe and the gigantic doctor walked side by side homewards along Plutoria Avenue, beneath the elm trees. Nor had they gone any great distance before Dr. Boomer fell to talking of the Duke. "'A charming man,' he said. "'Delightful. I feel extremely sorry for him.' "'No worse off, I presume, than any of the rest of us,' growled Mr. Fyshe, 
who was feeling in the sourest of democratic moods. A man doesn't need to be a duke to have a stomach. Oh, pooh-pooh, said the president, waving the topic aside with his hand in the air. I don't refer to that. Oh, not at all. I was thinking of his financial position. An ancient family like the Dullums, it seems too bad altogether. For, of course, to an archaeologist like Dr. Boomer, an intimate acquaintance with the pedigree and fortunes of the greater ducal families, from Jock of Ealing downwards, was nothing. It went without saying. As beside the Neanderthal skull and the Bimbabwe ruins, it didn't count. Mr. Fyshe stopped absolutely still in his tracks. "'His financial position?' he questioned, quick as a lynx. "'Certainly,' said Dr. Boomer. I had taken it for granted that you knew. The Dullam family are practically ruined. The Duke, I imagine, is under the necessity of mortgaging his estates. Indeed, I should suppose he is here in America to raise money. Mr. Fyshe was a man of lightning action. Any man accustomed to the stock exchange learns to think quickly. One moment, he cried. I see we are right at your door. May I just run in and use your telephone? I want to call up Boulder for a moment. Two minutes later, Mr. Fyshe was saying into the telephone, Oh, is that you, Boulder? I was looking for you in vain today. Wanted you to meet the Duke of Dulham, who came in quite unexpectedly from New York. Felt sure you'd like to meet him. Wanted you at the club for dinner, and now it turns out that the club's all upset. Waiter's strike, or some such rascality. And the palaver, so I hear, is in the same fix. Could you possibly— Here Mr. Fyshe paused, listening a moment, and then went on. Yes, yes, an excellent idea. Most kind of you. Pray do send your motor to the hotel and give the Duke a bite of dinner. No, I wouldn't join you, thanks. Most kind. Good night. And within a few minutes more, the motor of Mr. Boulder was rolling down from Pretoria Avenue to the Grand Palaver Hotel. What passed between Mr. Boulder and the Duke that evening is not known. That they must have proved congenial company to one another, there is no doubt. In fact, it would seem that, dissimilar as they were in many ways, they found a common bond of interest in sport and it is quite likely that Mr. Boulder may have mentioned that he had a hunting lodge, what the Duke would call a shooting-box, in Wisconsin woods, and that it was made of logs, rough cedar logs, not squared, and that the timber-wolves and others which surrounded it were of a ferocity without parallel. Those who knew the Duke best could measure the effect of that upon his temperament. At any rate, it is certain that Mr. Lucullus Fyshe, at his breakfast-table next morning, chuckled with suppressed joy to read in the Plutopian citizen the item, We learn that the Duke of Dulham, who has been paying a brief visit to the city, leaves this morning with Mr. Asmodeus Boulder for the Wisconsin woods. We understand that Mr. Boulder intends to show his guest, who is an ardent sportsman, something of the American wolf and so the Duke went whirling westwards and northwards with Mr. Boulder in the drawing-room end of a Pullman car that was all littered up with double-barreled express rifles and leather game-bags and lynx-catchers and wolf-traps and heaven knows what, and the Duke had on his very roughest sporting suit made apparently of alligator-hide, 
and as he sat there with a rifle across his knees, while the train swept onwards through open fields and broken woods, the real country at last, towards the Wisconsin forest, there was such a light of genial happiness in his face that had not been seen there since he had been marooned in the mud jungles of Upper Burma. And opposite, Mr. Boulder looked at him with fixed, silent eyes, and murmured from time to time some renewed information of the ferocity of the timber-wolf. But of wolves other than the timber-wolf, and fiercer still into whose hands the duke might fall in America, he spoke never a word. Nor is it known in the record what happened in Wisconsin, and to the Mausoleum Club the duke and his visit remained only as a passing and a pleasant memory. End of chapter 1, part 2 Recording by Linda Lee Paquette